0: Good evening again, and this is my last opportunity this 2020 year of Camp Syker to share with you a message that God has placed on my heart. Before I do that, I just want to thank uh, Reverend Matt Brooks, Um, really appreciate him, and it's been a joy to get to know him a little bit better, and I look forward to further opportunities where we can become more acquainted and fellowship together. But I appreciate his leadership and also the leadership of your board, and uh, I'm I'm grateful for the opportunity uh, to once again share with you from God's Word. I really am just an expository preacher of God's Word. That's what I know best to do, and that's what my heart is drawn to do. I'm very strongly compelled that way, and so that's what I look to do. I'm not a very good topical preacher and some of those things don't draw me, and so you're not getting from me a lot of current events. What you will get from me is, what does God have to say to us that's timeless? What do we learn from the examples that have been given to us in Scripture? They are to instruct us, after all. They are to be examples for us. They are to instruct us in the things of God and to instruct us in righteousness. So we're looking at one of those characters this evening. I'll give it away as to who is the author of this great prayer, this great passage of Scripture with which most of us will be familiar. He's the man that was known as being after God's heart. He is the second king of Israel. He's none other than David. And we're going to look at... A moment um, a moment of great proportion, an epic change, a crossroads in his life that was, was critical. It was a pivotal time in David's life. And what we find from that working of God to convict him and to break him down from his position of arrogant disobedience... We find, as part of the outcome of that, Psalm 51. So yes, an Old Testament text that we are going to consider as we look at the cry of a broken heart, Psalm 51. We'll read the first 17 verses. There are only 19 verses, but we'll stop at verse 17. So let's read together as we look at God's Word. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being. And in the hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, and let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out All my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken spirit. And a contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Father, take your word and apply it to our hearts. Speak to us, gracious Spirit. Convict if it's necessary. Convince us to seek you. Heal the broken heart. Heal the sin-sick soul. Bring peace where there isn't peace. Bring joy where there is sorrow. Bring that which is pure out of that which is impure. Have your way through the great lesson that is David. In Jesus' name, amen. We simply do not have the time to tell all the sordid details that lead up to this great prayer. But just a few highlights to refresh our memories, if we may. David is the king of Israel. His armies are in battle. He has reached a point where he's tired of really fulfilling his responsibility by going out and leading his army. So he's back in safety, he's back in comfort, and at his higher plateau where the palace is, he's able to look out over Jerusalem, and he's able to look at areas and vistas like the rooftops of, of people's dwelling places. And in so doing, uh, he sees a beautiful woman who is taking a bath, and I'll just say that this, it's likely that this is not the first time Bathsheba has caught his attention. David, as king, can have as many wives as he wants. That's not God's plan, but that's pretty much the culture of the day, and progressive revelation had not let out from that yet. So he could have really any woman that he wanted, as long as she's not someone else's wife. He could add to his harem, and he would be free to do that, really with with, uh, moral impunity. So what he does is he looks at a woman and lusts after her and becomes very passionate and drawn to her. And the one issue, the stumbling block, the, the real obstacle is she is another man's wife. Not only is she just a run-of-the-mill guy's wife, but this man, Uriah, is one of David's faithful, loyal servants. He's a soldier. He's in the army. He's in the battle. He's out of town. He's away. So what does David do? David becomes one who, in his power and in his dominance as a king, he exerts that responsibility and that power for his own sensual pleasure, for his momentary pleasure, And he summons Bathsheba to his palace, and we know that he has intercourse with her, and the word comes down the pike weeks later from Bathsheba that she is pregnant. So now, all of a sudden, things have to be addressed, and things have to be cleaned up. Isn't it interesting that sin always leaves a trail to clean up? It always involves two. It always involves the innocent. It never just spills out on the criminals, it never just touches the committers of the sins, but it always spills out, makes a mess, and touches, splashes on to even the innocent. So David hatches a plan and figures, I'll, I'll bring Uriah back from the battle for a respite, for some R&R, and, and he'll and go and spend time with his wife and the baby and her pregnancy can be pinned on Uriah and not on me. And long story short, Uriah is so loyal and so faithful even to his, his uh, peers that he will not cooperate with that plan. And David, David gets him drunk even the second night and tries to get him to go into his house, but the word comes to David. Um, Uriah never went into his house. He slept outside and didn't, didn't go into his house. So then David looks at his next plan, the next plan, he brings in a commander, he brings in others, and even others who are killed in the cover-up, and he plots for Uriah's demise through advancing to the gates, feigning an attack, withdrawing the troops, and letting Uriah and a few others with him suffer the consequences of that ill-fated plan and it'll get him out of the way, it'll solve the problem, we can dust that off, we can wash our hands, and we can be rid of the problem, rid of the problem, rid of the problem. It's interesting about sin that sin, once it's engaged and once it becomes a a complicit partner, and once you agree to it and agree with it, it's simply... It grows, it adds, it expands, it becomes that which you're trying to figure out every step of the way. How do I address it? But really, it's not how do I address the sin, how do I address its consequences? How do I get rid of the problem? How do I erase the consequences? That's what really most people try to do. David is no exception. So in light of all that he has done, he seems absolutely desensitized to the horrible, terrible, wicked plans that he is concocting. He's gone from becoming engrossed in his own passion to have Bathsheba to where he no longer even cares about the fact that she's another man's wife to the point where he tries to get Uriah through a a hatched plan to to go and spend time with his wife, and he won't do it. Then he gets him drunk, and that doesn't work, and finally he has him murdered. And upon all of that, he then says, ooh, no problem, Uriah's gone, I can bring Bathsheba into my palace, into my harem, and it's all good, it's all covered up, it's all taken care of, there are no consequences to my actions. But what David didn't count on is he really didn't count on, even though he had written about three-quarters of the Psalms before he enters the palace, he's forgotten much of what he's written, and he's forgotten a lot about God. And he's forgotten that God isn't blind. He's forgotten that God knows. He's forgotten that God knows his, his sitting down and is standing up, is going in and is and, and coming out. He, he, he forgets that God knows our thoughts afar off. He forgets all of those things and thinks that he's covered it all up, but he hasn't. Far from it. In fact, God who is just patient and God who always is timely, God sends His prophet Nathan, and you know the story. Nathan tells this story about a rich man and a poor man and the poor man's one precious ewe lamb and the fact that the rich man exerts power over him, takes his one precious ewe lamb, butchers it so that he can prepare a meal for guests that have come to him. David is so incensed, he's also blind. David is so incensed, he's also blind. He's so incensed about the injustice of this rich man that he says, we'll kill him and we'll hang him. And Nathan stands there boldly, courageously as God's emissary and points an index finger at him and says, You're the man. You're the man. Suddenly, the convicting power of God's Spirit through a faithful, courageous messenger, and boy, we need more like that today. Let me just say we need more like that today. Let me just say we need more Nathans today. He boldly, courageously, David could have just offed him. David just could have whacked him. But he he stood there and declared what God told him to tell David. David all of a sudden has an overwhelming sense of conviction come to him. It's such a load. It is so powerful. It is so oppressive that David describes it as breaking his bones. That's conviction. I wish we had that kind of conviction today. I wish we experienced that today. My, how we need it. But David was just so under conviction. I know that's a phrase that seems old time, archaic, dust covered, but it's a good phrase. He was so under conviction that he simply could not stand it. We know that as it's described in God's Word, he put on sackcloth, took his royal robes off, put on sackcloth, and covered himself, doused himself with ashes. And out of that anguish of heart, out of that broken heart that only God can bring to us, this isn't something David worked up, this is sorrow that that comes from the power of God, putting his hand on a sinner's heart and mind. A heavy hand, a necessary conviction, an ominous weight and presence. Under that load, David just falls, David crumbles, David humbles himself as we need to and as we should. And there are only two points in my thinking tonight and in looking at this psalm. The first thing is, the cry of a broken heart indicates this. We get a candid view of what is. A candid view of what is. David doesn't even try anymore to fake it. David doesn't try to cover it up. David doesn't try to hoodwink God. He's not trying to fake God trying to move God uh, not to see or try to present things that aren't true. He says a number of things. He talks about his condition. He talks about what he's done. He talks about his record of wrongs. He, he talks about his record needing to be blotted out. He, he knows what he's done. He knows what he's done. And he also is expressing while he clearly... in in an unvarnished way, speaks candidly about what he's done, owns up to it. And there are several indicators of that, by the way. He doesn't say, oh God, Bathsheba shouldn't have been taking a bath on her rooftop. Oh, that Bathsheba wouldn't, wouldn't have been so beautiful. God, why did you make her so pretty? Why did you make her so compelling? Why did you make her so, so beautiful? Why did you make me so interested in her? It's, after all, why did you make me this way? There are a lot of those kinds of excuses being used today in same kinds of stuff. David threw out the excuses, nor did he try to shift responsibility to Bathsheba or anybody else. He owned his sins. So I want us to note that. I want us to to write that down. I want us to mark that. Look at just the personal pronouns that we find in David's confession. My sin, my sin, my sin, my iniquity, my uncleanness, my transgressions. Look at David's ownership of his own junk. He didn't blame his circumstance. He didn't blame his upbringing. He didn't say, you know, oh, that my dad Jesse would have taught me a little bit better about the birds and the bees. No, the reality is David is absolutely opened up and transparent to the fact that he's the culprit, he's the wrongdoer, he's the one, even though he's a king, and even though he's written Psalms, and even though he's known God, and even though God has said about him, I have found a man after my own heart who will do all the will of God, even though that has been said prior to this, that does not dismiss all the good that David had done before does not dismiss his transgressions at this point. He has to own them. And friends, so do you and I. We have to own our own junk. We have to agree with God that God's reading of the indictment against us is fair, it's just, it's spot on, it's accurate. A candid view of what is and he says very, very intricate things about that. Not only has he done, done bad things, done terrible things, and there's the record of his wrongs, he adds something to that. He throws out this phrase that might, might at first glance be considered kind of odd, kind of out of place. He's not using this as an excuse. He's frankly being more honest and more open than he's ever been before when he says, you know what, so that, so that nobody can say that God's a liar and, and God's indictment of me is, is, is not accurate and fair, he said, I just want to make this very, very clear. God is a blameless judge. God is an accurate judge. God is absolutely truthful all the time. You know, we often say, you know, God is good all the time. God is good. Um, God is good all the time. All the time. God is good. We can say this, God is true. God is true, God is truth, God is truth all the time, all the time. God is truth, and David is saying, "Let's let me just fess up at this point. God's justified in indicting me." And here's what he says: He says, "Behold, in verse five, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in my sin, and in sin, my mother conceived me." He does not say that the act of sexual intercourse and relations that his mom had with his father, Jesse, was somehow sinful, he's saying this, I have been affected by sin. I have been affected with a bent, a twist in my spirit from conception. G.K. Chesterton called it. Trying to be a house, trying to make a house out of twisted timber. And the issue is, David is saying, I not only did wrong things, but I've noticed in my heart twisted timber. I came into this world this way. This is what is. And he goes on and says, and here's the reality of what is. What is stands up against the light of who God is. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. But what's interesting to me in this psalm, what's interesting to me in David's prayer, and which is also common for us, is when there is an absolute humbling of ourselves before God, and as we start going down through the layers that God shows us, that God reveals to us, and as we confess, and as we cry out to God, and as we quit pretending, and as we quit playing church, and as we get down to business with God on God's terms and in God's ways, when we deal with with God's conditions, when we really do that in an honest, candid way, when we start doing that, there's an interesting phenomenon that comes out of that. As we go down in our praying and down in the issues of our being and down in the issues of our condition of heart and our condition of action, what we've done, as we go down in that moment of confession, it's remarkable how there also is the corresponding rising of hope. As we obey, as we confess, as we quit playing with God and as we quit trying to somehow hide from God and hide things from God, and as we confess, there there is also the corresponding rising of faith, the rising of hope. So not only do we have a candid view of what is, but we have a convinced view view of what can be. Those are the two points. A candid view of what is, but a convinced view of what can be. Things shift in verse 7, really in the last part of verse 6, but things shift notably in verse 7. Here is a broken man. I mean, you can't fall any farther than David fell from king and beloved you know, musician and, and beloved poet of Israel. You can't fall any farther that, than what he fell. But we move from a candid view of what is to a convinced view of what can be. And oh, for you and me, we can draw great hope. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Let's look at that first body of hope. He's looking at himself, as would have been the custom in his people group, of a leper that suddenly realized I'm healed. My skin no longer is leprous. The only way that you could be brought back into the fold, brought back into normal community life, if you had been diagnosed as a leper before because you had to separate from the community, the only way you could be brought back in would be go to the priest, go to the high priest, let him look at you, examine you, and then to really, in in essence, designate in front of all the people that you were acceptable back to come into the community, he would do something that David is referring to here. He would examine you, and he would look at you, and then he would say, we're going to gather all the the people together, the community together that you've been um, extricated from. You've been avoiding them because of your disease, and we're going to do something that they'll understand. We're going to provide some symbolism. We're going to take turtle loves, and we're going to... We're going to kill them, and we're going to put their blood in a basin, and we're going to take a branch of a hyssop plant, and we're going to dip that in the blood, and we're going to sprinkle it on you. And that's going to be our sign to the community. That's not only our witness to you, but that's our sign to the community. He's clean. He's clean. He's clean. Take him back. Bring him back into the fold. He's clean. He's clean he's clean. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, I will be whiter than snow. David's not praying for something that's partial, he's praying for something that's complete and comprehensive. Make me also to be able to hear joy and gladness and the bones that you've broken in conviction to once again rejoice. Blot out all my iniquities. Don't just hide your face from my sins, but blot out all my iniquities. But then... He does something beyond the actions. He does something beyond praying for forgiveness. He does something beyond wiping out the record. He does something beyond bringing him back into the fold of favor in the community. He he asks and pleads for something very different than that. He asks for something that you never find him really asking for at any other place and at any other time. The word is a Genesis word. I want you to get that. It is the word we find here, create. It is the Hebrew, bahra, and it means, it's, it's, it's a Genesis word that means do something in me that I have not had done before, Create. Don't just renew. That comes later. Don't just offer it again, but do something in me that's never been done before. Create in me a clean heart, O God. So he says, I came into this world with twisted timber in me. I have been twisted from conception. But now he's saying with a spark of God as the catalyst to pray this way. By the way, let me just pause here and say God never incites us and God never ignites us to pray a prayer that cannot be fulfilled. So just mark that. Highlight that. Put that somewhere in your Bible and add it here. Why does God ignite David to pray this prayer? Because God knows he can do this. So he encourages David to pray this way. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Go all the way down to the core of who I am, and as a result also renew a steadfast spirit within me. Create in me. You are the creator, God. You have made me and I haven't. (laughs) You have made us and not we ourselves. You are the Creator, God. You not only bring us into existence in physiological, physical life, biological life. That's not the only life you give us. You give us life from your very heart, life that is spiritual, life that is different than just being physically alive. You make us spiritually alive. And there's a heart that is spiritual as well as a heart that is physical. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me away from your presence. Don't take your spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. My, the hope. My, the confidence in this prayer. The cry of a broken heart has to go through a candid view of what is. But as we are confessing before God, as we are open before God, as we quit trying to play with hiding things from God and we just absolutely uh, yield out from ourselves everything that is true and God helps us to do that, as we really repent and then also as we seek God for a clean heart, what we say is by the grace of God, can be something else. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I'd give it. You're not pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God, and this means the sacrifices that are pleasing to God, include a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Friends, I'm thankful that this doesn't conclude simply as a tale of woe. I'm grateful that this is not the, the psalm of the hopelessly broken heart. I'm thankful that this is not the prayer of one who is just forever condemned and has absolutely no recourse. What David did was horrible. What David did was evil. What David did was heinous. Consequences remained for David. Let's not forget that. The sword never departed from his house. He had family rifts and horrible family friction and problems for the rest of his life. Consequences often last long. They stay with us. They stick with us. But but when it comes to David's heart, After David just emptied the junk and recognized his deepest need, I'm thankful that God became the one who answers, meets the need of, comes to the aid of the broken and contrite heart. I don't know where you are. I don't know what need you might have. But I want you to understand this. God pursues us with mercy, goodness, loving kindness. He pursues us because He does not want us to be lost. He does not want us to be unclean. And I don't say this so that we can just do what we want to do, just thinking we always have an escape mechanism. No, we should, we should be fearful of ever grieving the heart of God. But I will say this, God is the God who will arrest us. God is the God who will pursue us. He is the one who will convict us. With this end in mind, he wants to create in us clean hearts. He wants to restore us and renew us. He wants to put in us willingness, and he alone can do that if we will come to Him with a broken and a contrite heart. Let's never forget God's objective for each of us. Let's never try to bypass the cry of a broken heart. Father, we thank You. You don't ask of us some great sacrifice. You just ask of us honesty. You ask of us candor. You ask of us confession. You call us to own what we've done and to confess who we are. You ask us to take those steps, but if we will, we have great promise in how you ignite David's heart to pray. If David can be forgiven, if his record can be blotted out, and if he can receive from you a clean heart, created in a new and fresh, real way, then so can we. May we draw hope. May we draw encouragement from what you did in David's life. Do your good work. Fulfill your good pleasure in us as well. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. May God bless his word to your heart, to my heart. May it accomplish God's great purpose. God bless you. God bless you. I hope to see you face to face someday. May God keep you.